You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Always at the end of the day on the campaign trail, whether it was getting on an airplane to fly to the next stop, or whether it was in a car going to the motel or a car going to a restaurant, we always heard Dole at the end of a day of maybe four or five campaign stops saying, free at last, free at last. Well, Bob Dole now is free at last. Godspeed, my friend. You've made a difference in my life. You've made a difference in our country. Your service and sacrifice will be celebrated for generations to come. I yield the floor. advantages. Let me be the bridge to an America that only the unknowing call myth. Let me be the bridge to a time of tranquility, faith, and confidence in action. And to those who say it was never so, that America has not been better, I say you're wrong. And I know because I was there, and I have seen it, and I remember. Do you ever wonder about that slim difference between Bob Dole, Senator, and Bob Dole could still be lying in a veteran's hospital somewhere. Uh, you know, you, you, you sort of wonder about that uh, as you look back on what made you do the next, take the next step, whether it was first walking after a year, uh, learning to dress myself after th maybe three or four years. It, it teaches a lot of patience, and you become, I think, uh, a little more sensitive to the needs of other people. If you think you've got a problem, you just look look around you, you'll find on the way home tonight there was a, a blind man crossing the street. So when you, you know, everybody out there is struggling in a different way. But Mr. President, Mrs. Clinton, Mr. Vice President, and distinguished guests, no one can claim to be equal to this honor. But I will cherish it as long as I live. Reverend clergy, distinguished guests, among the many memories from 50 years of friendship, there's one that especially captures what Bob Dole was as a man and, in my view, as a patriot. We were on our way to the 50th anniversary of D-Day in Normandy, but we started in Italy, in Anzio. Much of has been written about his time in Anzio, but to be there with him 
felt significantly different. He was on a mission in the mountains. Nazi gunfire and mortar fire was thick. A man was dying, men were dying. Facing a hail of bullets, Second Lieutenant Robert Joseph Dole hurled a grenade into an empty gun nest. He was trying to help a fallen comrade, his platoon radio men, when everything changed. And I mean everything changed. His spine was damaged because fire tore across the hills, shattering his body. Grievously wounded, he was paralyzed. Dragged behind a wall, Bob would pass in and out of consciousness, dreaming of home as he lay bleeding in the foxhole for nearly nine hours. He was 21 years old. Nearly eight decades on, we gather here in a world far different from the mountains battlefield in 1949 or 45. But there's something, there's something that connects that past and present, wartime and peace, then and now. The courage, the grit, the goodness, and the grace of second lieutenant named Bob Dole, who became Congressman Dole, Senator Dole, statesman, husband, father, friend, colleague, and a word that's often overused but not here, a genuine hero, Bob Dole. Dean and the clergy officiating today's service, President Clinton, Vice President Harris, Vice President Pence and Cheney and Quayle, Speaker Pelosi, Leader Schumer, Leader McConnell, members of Congress of both parties, past and present, members of the cabinet, General Milley, and leaders of our military, distinguished guests, most of all the Dole family. Elizabeth, it's been said that memory is the power to gather roses in winter. Bob left you with 45 years' worth of roses, of a life built and a love shared that's going to guide you through the difficult days ahead. Jill and I will always be there for you, as many others in this church will be, as you and Bob were always there for us in ways nobody knows. And Robin, you carry your father's pride, grace, and character. He'll always going to be with you. As the old saying goes, we Irish say, you are your father's daughter. You are your father's daughter. Bob Dole's story is a very American one. Born and raised in a three-room house through the Dust Bowl of the Great Depression. Shipped out as a young man to World War II. Wounded in battle on the same weekend that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was being mourned by millions. Bob came home, rebuilt his life. Painful hour by painful day by painful week, by painful month, 
by painful year. Hearing he and Danny Noe was wounded on the mountain not far from where he was. Talk about the recovery they spent together for all those literally several years. It was astounding. God, what courage Bob Dole had. He then went to school in the GI Bill, came to Washington with the New Frontier, bravely voted for civil rights and voting rights in the years of the Kennedys, Lyndon Johnson, and Martin Luther King Jr. Ran for president on a ticket with Gerald Ford. And through the ages of Nixon, Carter, Reagan, Bush the Elder, and Clinton, Bob was literally the master of the Senate. We served together for 25 years. We disagreed, but we were never disagreeable with one another. Not one time that I can think of. I found Bob to be a man of principle, pragmatism, and enormous integrity. He came into the arena with certain guiding principles to begin with devotion to country, to fair play, to decency, to dignity, to honor, to literally attempting to find the common good. That's how he worked with George McGovern to fight hunger in America, particularly as it affected children and around the world. He worked with Teddy Kennedy and Tom Harkin to bring down the barriers of Americans living with disabilities. A profound change and a profound act of grace. He worked with Daniel Patrick Moynihan to literally save Social Security because Bob believed every American deserved to grow old with their basic dignity, basic dignity intact. And over the opposition of many in his own party, and some in mine, he managed to build or create the federal holiday in the name of Martin Luther King Jr. Bob Dole, Bob Dole did that. He never forgot where he came from, and I never forgot what he said to our colleagues about the effort for the King holiday. And I'll quote, he said, no first-class democracy can treat people like second-class citizens. No first-class democracy can treat people like second-class citizens. Bob didn't hate government, knew the people needed it most were the people most in need. He wanted government to work, to work for folks like him who came up the hard way. Just give everybody a chance, Joe, just a chance. During the Depression, Bob's parents moved into the basement of their three-room, not three-bedroom, their three-room home in Russell, Kansas, so they could rent out, quote, the upstairs. Bob understood hardship. He had known hardship, and he never, he never forgot it. 
He never forgot the people as well who sent him to Washington, people from Russell and from Kansas. Bob was a man who always did his duty, who lived by a code of honor. Almost seems strange to say that today, but he lived by a code of honor, and he meant it. Just as his colleagues, Republican and Democrat, looked at him, I think they saw him the same way I did. Just ask any who served with him at the time. Bob Dole fit my dad's description. He said, you must be a man of your word. Without your word, you're not a man. Bob Dole was a man of his word. He loved his country, which he served his whole life. The Bible tells us to whom much is given, much is expected. And Bob Dole, for all his hardship, believed he'd been given the greatest gift of all. He was an American. He was an American. And he felt it. Let's be honest. Bob Dole was always honest, sometimes to a fault. <laughs> He once endured the wrath of his fellow Republicans when there was a legitimate fight going on to defund Amtrak. Now, I've traveled over a million, 200,000 miles on Amtrak because I commuted every single day. It came time for literally the deciding vote, the deciding vote on whether we're going to defund Amtrak. And he cast the vote against his party deciding to keep funding Amtrak. And obviously, you might guess he was asked, why? Why would you do that? He said, it's the best way to get Joe Biden the hell out of here at night so he's not home in the morning. <laughs> Excuse my language. But... True story. Absolutely true story. God, I love the guy. As I said, he was always honest. But Bob relished a good political fight, as much as anybody I've ever served with in the 36 years I was in the Senate. And Bob gave as good or better than he got. He was a proud Republican. He chaired his party. He led its caucus in the United States Senate. And he bore the banner as its nominee for vice president and president of the United States. He could be partisan, and that was fine. Americans have been partisan since Jefferson and Hamilton squared off in George Washington's cabinet. But like them, Bob Dole was a patriot. He was a patriot. And here's what his patriotism teaches us, in my view. As Bob Dole himself wrote at the end of his life, and I quote him, I cannot pretend that I have not been a loyal champion of my party, but I've always served my country best when I did so first and foremost as an American. End of quote. First and foremost as an American. That was Bob Dole. Lydia, that was your husband. That was your dad. 
always as an American. He understood that we're all part of something much bigger than ourselves. And he really did, I felt. He really understood it. And a compromise isn't a dirty word. It's the cornerstone of democracy. Consensus is required in a democracy to get anything done. That's how you get things done. Again, listen to Bob Dole's words, not mine. I'm quoting him again. I learned that it's difficult to get anything done unless you can compromise. Not your principles, but your willingness to see the other side. Those who suggest that compromise is a sign of weakness misunderstand the fundamental strength of democracy. End of quote. In his final days, Bob made it clear that he was deeply concerned about the threat to American democracy, not from foreign nations, but from the division tearing us apart from within. And this soldier reminded us, and I quote, too many of us have sacrificed too much in defending freedom from foreign adversaries to allow our democracy to crumble in a state under a state of infighting that grows more unacceptable day by day. Grows more unacceptable day by day. He wrote this when he knew his days were numbered in small numbers. My fellow Americans, Taps is now sounding for this soldier of America. Forged in war, tested by adversity. Taps is now sounding for this patriot, driven by a sense of mission, to give back to the land that gave everything to him, for which he nearly gave his all. Taps is now sounding for this giant of our time, and of all time. We're bidding this great American farewell, but we know as long as we keep his spirit alive, as long as we see each other not as enemies, but as neighbors and colleagues, as long as we remember that we're here not to tear down, but to build up, as long as we remember that, and taps will never sound for Bob Dole. For Bob will be with us always, cracking a joke, moving a bill, finding common ground. In his final message to the nation, Bob said that whenever he started a new journey, whenever he started a new journey, the first thing he would do, and I quote, sit back and watch for a few days. Then start standing up for what he thought was right. End of quote. Bob is taking his final journey. He's sitting back now watching us. Now it's our job 
to start standing up for what's right for America. I salute you, my friend. Your nation salutes you. And I believe the words of the poet R.G. Ingersoll when he described heroism better fit you than anyone I know. And Ingersoll wrote the following. When the will defies fear, when duty throws the gauntlet down to fate, when honor scorns a compromise with death, that is heroism. The flights of angels, things that sing thee to thy rest, Bob. God bless Bob Dole. God bless America. And may God protect our troops. President Biden and a large number of political leaders from both parties gathered today to honor the late Senate Majority Leader Bob Dole at his funeral in Washington, D.C. Amna Nawaz has our report. The late Bob Dole arrived at the Washington National Cathedral today, his casket draped in the flag he'd honored as a soldier and statesman. The first tribute delivered by his former Senate colleague, President Joe Biden. He came into the arena with certain guiding principles to begin with devotion to country, to fair play, to decency, to dignity, to honor, to literally attempting to find the common good. Those principles, Biden said, led Dole to deep concern in his final days about threats to American democracy. And this soldier reminded us, and I quote, too many of us have sacrificed too much in defending freedom from foreign adversaries to allow our democracy to crumble in a state under a state of infighting that grows more unacceptable day by day. Biden hailed Dole as a man of integrity and quick wit. On display when Dole was asked why he bucked his party, casting the deciding vote to save Amtrak. He said it's the best way to get Joe Biden the hell out of here at night so he's not home no more. <laughs> Excuse my language. Boy. Fellow Kansan Pat Roberts, who followed Dole in the Senate, today recalled the deep connection he kept to his home state. Whether we were in Topeka... Abilene, Wichita, or Dodge City. I saw Bob Dole connect with Kansans always on a personal level. Roberts, too, remembered Dole's renowned humor, often deployed to break down political walls. It was embedded in his nature to deliver that punchline, deadpan, knowing, waiting for the room to light up, which it always did, for the barriers to come down, letting the air out of the partisan the partisan balloons. Former Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle, a Democrat who served opposite then-Leader Dole, spoke of a bond born across party lines that only strengthened with time. I've always thought that life has no blessing like that of a good friend. And to know Bob was to know the truth of that statement. The final tribute from Dole's daughter, Robin, who saw firsthand her father's lifetime of service. He set a personal goal to help at least one person every day of his life. 
Then he said, I'm not sure I've been able to meet my goal. I said, Dad, you've got to be kidding. Some days you help one person, and other days you help 40,000 people. I will miss him so much. I think I will still talk to him every night. I love you, Dad, and I promise you will never walk alone. Former Senator and Secretary Elizabeth Dole honored her husband through deeds today, not words, carefully laying a wreath in his memory. The late Senator Dole will now return to Kansas for home state tributes before being laid to rest at Arlington National Cemetery. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Amna Nawaz. As we wait for the ceremony at the World War II Memorial to get underway, I'm joined now by three men who knew Senator Bob Dole well in different capacities. Republican strategist and a former consultant to Dole, Mike Murphy, the man who literally wrote the book on Dole's 96 presidential campaign. Bob Woodward, who may or may not reveal how many times Bob Dole was a source for his many books. Uh, and former Senator Alan Simpson, who served alongside Dole during his time in Washington. Mike Murphy, let's start from the presidential race uh, a little bit. You uh, you actually worked out a campaign against him and then you joined him, um, which to me says a lot about Bob Dole. Your memories from that campaign. Oh, I greatly admired him. I, I actually worked for him several times. I worked for him in 87 in the first race. Very proud to do that. Then in the primaries in, in 95, I was with Lamar Alexander, but I had a lot of fun in the green rooms talking to Senator Dole. I always held in great regard. And then I, I uh, worked on his campaign in the general election. Um, I've never met a more impressive person. I've been very lucky between Dole and John McCain to work for really great people. Mike, and that's what I've been thinking today is that we're not just saying goodbye to Bob Dole. I feel like we have, we're saying goodbye to an entire era and look, I'm not going to get a little too Pollyannish, but an entire era of politics that I certainly grew up with and why I wanted to do the job I want I am doing today. Um, it, it seemed like an honorable profession, um, American politics, the one that Bob Dole and I'll be speaking with Alan Simpson here in a minute. Um, doesn't feel that way now. Yeah, you know, Dole was a, a lost thing, which we desperately need more of. He was a practical politician. Uh, he, 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 I always thought his nickname should be Sarge because I see him operate in the Senate and he'd be like, all right, knuckleheads, we got to pass this bill. What do you need? What do you need? You know, he was all about getting things done from a conservative point of view. And that was not uncommon among the greatest generation guys. Uh, and, you know, that is a very, very different situation than we have today. Although heroes like Dole serve one last purpose when they pass. We celebrate their life and they can be inspirational. Yeah. And watching people in that in that uh, cathedral today talking to each other across party lines maybe it'll be a, maybe we'll have a little nostalgia craze break out for when people put country first and that would be a final service from senator dull that i think he would appreciate alan simpson tell me about the times when maybe in that senate republican lunch you guys were ready you're, you're not ready to to compromise you know how would he make the case how would he get everybody to say look uh We've got what we want. Let's move on. Well, he would make the case with good humor. And then they'd say, well, how do we craft a bill here that we're going to ship off to Clinton to see if he will veto it? And boy, when he does that, we're going to get him and chew his leg off. And he'd say, you know, that cartoon, you know, the runner, the 
whatever that was, and he'd see this bomb and he'd throw it down to somebody, and then the guy'd pick it up and throw it back and it'd blow up in their face. I said, that's what this is, that's that's what Clinton will do to us. Forget it. That's that, there's no joy in that kind of stuff. And, and what pleasure do you get out of crafting something just out of cunning and duplicit behavior? To, to, to see if it'll blow up in somebody else's face in the in the minority leader or the majority leader. He wasted no time with that st- stuff. Uh, and so that was that was his charm. He'd say, uh, what are we going to do? And uh, what do you got for pie today uh, for lunch? Uh, and he uh, he threw he threw them all off. Uh, and there were people who were boy talk about tougher than a boiled owl. Some of those guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll never forget the one one guy said of our party said about about uh, uh, Mark ha- uh, Mark Andrews or Mark An- Mark Hatfield right. said you know he didn't vote for the defense b- bill and and Dole said Mark why didn't you vote for that and he said I was one of the last sailors that headed for Nagasaki and I don't even really talk about it and I don't like to hear from some guy who's a draft dodging bonehead from whatever state it was. He didn't use curse words. He sent me off to do the cursing. He said, well, you go curse on somebody. I said, yeah, I was his assistant for 10 years. I love the guy. I'd go, go anywhere for with him. But his was charm was, was humor. Bob Woodward, you covered him. And I, like I said, I, I half joke, I wonder... Uh, how many how many times he's a source in so many of your books? And I know you can't reveal the, the anonymous quotes, um, but it was interesting to see him as a as a hard charging partisan during Watergate, but also accepting the facts as they were when they came out and him admitting he didn't know all the facts. Yes, I, just one scene. I, I did a book on Dole's race against Clinton 25 years ago. Uh, the 1996 race and uh, Mm -hmm. the staff would say, if you want to interview Dole, get a three o'clock appointment on Saturday because he'll sit there because he doesn't like to go home. He always works. So uh, in the middle of the campaign, I'm there one Saturday afternoon and said, you know, Bill Clinton was upset at you a couple of years ago when you went on television uh, the morning that Clinton's uh, mother, Virginia Kelly, had passed away, and Dole was that acidic, uh, we need a whitewater investigation. Right. And Dole said to me, said, oh, no, uh, Bob Dole would never do that. And then his staff checked and realized that he had done that. And uh, so we're sitting there and talking about, mothers of all things. And Dole remembered his own mother, Bina, who died 13 years earlier, and tears came to his eyes and he really broke down. Wow. And he then remembered the number, uh, phone number, and uh, he called her. So uh, he then wrote an apology letter to Clinton right in the middle of the campaign. Very unusual action, saying, I should not have done that. That is not who I am. 
That's a great story. It does say a lot uh, about it. You know, Alan Simpson, the other thing about what we're losing today is, is you know, Bob Dole was was the spokesperson for the greatest generation for some of us in many ways. And the importance of those World War II veterans in running this country and in keeping the Senate from becoming a partisan place. And I lament today that I, I think if more of those members had served, and I'm not saying in the military, national service, however you want to call it, but if you serve a common purpose when you're younger, when you're in public service, you may appreciate it a bit more when you have to make the rules. I think the two of us used to talk about... Uh I was, a, I was a lieutenant in the infantry. I was at the end of the Army of Occupation in Germany with the 2nd Armored Division. And, of course, uh, I told Dole, I said, Bob, uh, don't have to worry about me. I, there's no footprints behind you. Um, don't, I don't want your job, and I'll go over the hill with you. You lead. You lead. I'll go over the hill and over the cliff with you. So we would talk about something something's missing with the young people especially congressmen they they don't know the discipline of the military and we talked about a, a draft well that would have been a shocking thing boy that'll that'll win you yeah. a lot of uh, a lot of votes but we often talked about public service what does a kid do uh, do something and volunteer this or get into something, though there were various aspects of organizations that did that. But Bob and I talked often about the fact that for the first time in your life, you really don't want to do what you want to do, and you're, by God, you're going to do it, or you're going to get court-martialed. Right. And uh, we, we agreed on that. And uh, that's why that is, they're all gone now. Uh, there are very yeah. few veterans. Uh, in, the, in the Congress, none. But that that may that may come back as these Iraq and Afghanistan veterans uh, come of age. Bob, you wrote that book. You brought up you wrote a book about that '96 race. What would a dull presidency have been like? Oh well, uh, he was a, a wonderful man, as everyone said. He was very disorganized, and if he'd been president, it would have been a Bob Dole disorganized presidency. But I, I remember after uh, the book, uh, the choice came out. Uh, he called me from. He was out campaigning uh, in Illinois. Called from my hometown and uh, called me at home. Said, "Oh, I'm here in Wheaton, Illinois." And uh, I said, well, have you read the book? And uh, one of the lines I will never forget, he said, well, I skimmed it in detail. And uh, <laughs> I think that's the way politicians <laughs> read books. They skim it, skim it in detail and look at their own name. And then uh, the final interview for the paperback. And so this is, uh, you know, the six months after, five months after he'd lost to Clinton. And uh, it was a two and a half hour interview. And uh, it was a new dole. Yeah, no tears, no self-pity. Right. And he very directly and dramatically said, look, this is about life after loss. And just asked, well, what do you think of Clinton? And of course, he maintained that edge. And he said, well, he was a rogue. But I liked him. (laughs) 
Bob Woodward, Alan Simpson, I appreciate both of you sharing some of these memories with us. Please stick around. We await the start of the ceremony from the World War II Memorial. Hi, everybody. This is Randall Wallace. I am at the World War II Memorial in uh, Washington, D.C., at the events today for honoring Bob Dole. Uh, Senator Dole died last week on Sunday at the age of 98. And uh, as many of you know, I was a, a big fan of Bob Dole's and, and worked on, helped on his 1996 presidential campaign. It was the year of my life, and he's been one of those guys that was an inspiration to me. And he and I had email exchanges through the years, and, and so I just thought it was important enough to come up here for this. And if you haven't been to the World War II Memorial, you really should come. I think it's the best. It's, 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 most, it's a magnificent memorial. It's probably the, one of the best, if, if not the best, on the whole mall. Um, they have all these quotes, like this one from President Harry Truman. It says, the heroism of our own troops was matched by that of the armed forces of the nations that fought by our side. They absorbed the blows, and they shared to the full in the ultimate destruction of the enemy. They have quotes like that all over the facility. And what they've got is kind of divided up on two sides with a big reflecting pool in the middle. You've got the Pacific side of the, of the monument that honors all the battles and everything that happened in the Pacific uh, segment of the war. And then over on the Atlantic side, they have uh, they have it over there, and they've got the states as they came into the Union going back and forth on each side. So it's a really neat uh, monument if you've never been. Then over here, and there's a lot of people here today, obviously, because in about 30 minutes, they'll be beginning the honoring of Bob Dole, who's going to have his... Um, funeral will be at the National Cathedral, but one of the things that's happened over here is people are laying wreaths all on the, where the gold stars are, and if you can see me where I'm at right now, um, they're the gold stars, a lot of sets of families and stuff here, but you can see where the, the flowers have been lined up, up and down, and it says, here mark, we mark the uh, price of freedom, so these stars represent, I think, 100,000 of the people who died during World War II. Soldiers, you know, it's, it's kind of an incredible thing. And I've got a, over here, of course, it's like a lineup of folks, but it explains what the gold stars were. And if you know some of the military uh, aspects of it, like I said, there's a family here, so I'm going to try to get in line <laughs> to, uh, to show it. But this probably is the most powerful thing in the whole monument. It'll make you kind of get emo emotional when you look at how many people were affected or died during World War II. But uh, the Price of Freedom wall holds 4,048 gold stars. Each gold star represents 100 American service personnel who died or remain missing in the war. The 405,399 American dead and missing from World War II are second only to the loss of more than 620,000 Americans during the Civil War. And here's the flag for it. So that you can see what I was reading. It's really kind of an incredible thing you look at it. So if you ever come to Washington, D.C., like I said, this is really a monument to come see. Um, and I would suggest to people, you want to come in the daytime so you can see, but come back at night because these two monuments here, the World War II monument and the, the Lincoln Memorial, are incredible at night. And then, um, uh, of course, the, the Korean War monument on one side is is really something because the soldiers look like they step right out of a of a, of a documentary set that they have. And of course, for the Vietnam War Memorial, 
is the one you need to go see in the daytime because it's they had that dark granite, and then but they've got the names of all the people who died during uh, during the Vietnam War, every single soldier, so, uh, from the start of the war all the way through to the end. And it, it will really it's really an incredible sight. So if you ever come to Washington D.C., this is this is the thing you want to come to. But we're gonna... this very small plaque is here. A grateful nation hereby recognizes Senator Robert J. Dole of Kansas for his tireless support of American veterans and the World War II Memorial. Um, a little plaque for a giant guy. Um, he, like I said, had more to do with building this than, than anybody. He and the chairman of FedEx. And so I wanted to make sure everybody saw this This plaque, if you want to see it when you come, is right by the World War II information uh, booth, which is right over here, which is just to the left of the memorial when you're coming from the uh, uh, Capitol. Take a break for a little bit. And uh, as you can see behind me, the press is setting up, or they're set up, um, at 11 o'clock on C-SPAN if you're at home, and they may they may actually air it on the networks, I, I don't know, but Bob Dole's funeral will start, and then at 1.30, he's going to come here, and uh, they're going to bring him here, and Elizabeth Dole's going to uh, lay a wreath, and uh, Tom Hanks, Savannah Guthrie, and uh, General Mark Milley are all going to speak uh, for a big commemoration here, because this, this monument, Bob Dole and the guy that ran FedEx, they were the ones who raised the money to build it. And, uh, and they did it mostly with private funds. I think the federal government donated the land, and they, they paid for the big grand opening and, and about $5 million to start. And so the whole $185 million, I think, that was spent on it was raised by Bob Dole and the chairman of FedEx, which was really incredible. So anyway, we'll be back probably about the 1.30 time, and I'll try to, to have a live feed of everything that happens if I can, <laughs> depending on where I'm sitting. <laughs> so anyway standing. Thank you. Hello. Good afternoon, everybody. It is so heartening and wonderful to see so many of you come out to honor our friend, a great American treasure, Senator Bob Dole. And it is fitting that we would meet here at the World War II Memorial, because this, of course, is the place that Senator Bob would come so often, especially in his later years, to meet you. He came here looking for you, soldier, service member, caregiver, patriot. He came to grasp your hand, to lock eyes, to convey what could never be sufficiently captured with words alone. Bravery, selflessness, sacrifice, loyalty, those are the qualities that animate so many pilgrimages to this place. And on some cold mornings, his seemed a one-man mission to honor those journeys and to stand in solidarity with those who could never make them. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of young lives memorialized here, of which Bob Dole was almost one. This monument is made of stone. His life was a flesh and blood monument to the values that we revere here. I have to marvel that of all people, it should be me here today talking about Senator Dole. We met only a few years ago, and yet somehow he and Mrs. Dole, Senator Elizabeth, took me under their wing, embraced me, and befriended me. They would call to ask about the kids, to chat about the big game. Over the years, they might send treats or an admired book or a note of encouragement. 
During the pandemic, we even once had a, a FaceTime with my then three and five-year-old and the Dole dogs. That was wild. When I told Senator Bob that the pandemic had forced me to anchor the news from my basement, he didn't miss a beat and said, well, I guess you've really hit rock bottom now. In short, what a glorious surprise, so marvelous and unexpected, this treasure of relationship, and inside it, a valuable lesson. Senator Bob showed me that even well into your 90s, it is never too late to make a new friend. We are all here this afternoon because Bob Dole stood for something. He stood for principle. He stood for dignity. He stood for integrity. He stood for friendship. He stood for his country. That he fought and bled for. A son of Kansas, a young man brimming with talent and promise and ambition, he went off to do his duty and he came back body broken and dreams smashed. He suffered unfathomably, but he willed himself to recover and heal and find a new path. He stood for resilience and determination and hope. And even when he couldn't stand any longer at the casket of an old friend who could forget, still he stood out of respect and out of honor. They were the greatest generation But Senator Bob believed in the promise of every generation and this one too. Don't let your spirits fall today. Don't cast your eyes downward and say, there goes one of the last good ones. Do what he would do and raise them up. Believe in the promise of this country and the goodness of its people. In these divided times, you may say, that is not easy to do. But easy isn't what is asked of any of us. Bob Dole once called himself the most optimistic man in America, and if he could be, then surely we can too. What an extraordinary life. And to the love of that life, dearest Elizabeth, I know how deeply you grieve your beloved, how sweet was the company you kept for nearly 50 years, how you will miss the humor and charm of your dearest companion. I also know of your deep faith and of his, and that connection between you is eternal and unbroken. It is how you will hold hands with him until you meet again. Over the summer, I called to wish the Doles a happy birthday. They're both July babies. And I was just about to leave for Tokyo to cover the Summer Olympics. Senator Bob told me, keep your eye on the quarter miler, his old track event, the 440-yard dash. 98 years old, Long confined to a wheelchair, he still remembered his best time. That Kansas racetrack was not far from mind. As I thought about that this week, the old scripture came to memory, 2 Timothy 4-7. For I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Bob Dole finished his race. He fought the good fight. He kept the faith. And now... I imagine him in the heavens, no longer limited by his earthly wounds, able to run again with speed and lightness and grace, or maybe better yet, to rest in peace and satisfaction for a life well lived. Thank you, Senator Bob, and thank you, Senator Elizabeth, for the honor of knowing you. To dear Robin and the extended Dole family, my deepest condolences, and thank you 
for the privilege of a lifetime to speak here today. And now I'll introduce a great friend of Senator Dole's and a great friend of this museum and this place, Mr. Tom Hanks. To appreciate the life and the accomplishments of Bob Dole, simply look around at where we have gathered today at this National Memorial to the Americans who gave their lives for the common good and the common cause of saving the world from tyrants. When Bob Dole fulfilled his duty in that war, which burned up half the world, the cost he paid was a hard one for him to bear. He lost the use of a limb and part of his once strong shoulders on a cold mountainside in Italy to an enemy that was trying to kill him. They failed. To recover, Bob Dole lay in a hard plaster body cast for 39 months, roughly 1,170 days, aided by all those who cared for the wounded veterans of that war. He worked himself through the long, hard sessions of physical toil just to be able to go about the routine motions of an average day. And yet, he was never able again to button a shirt or sign his name as he had. He saluted and he made your acquaintance with his left hand. The folks from Russell, Kansas, they knew Bob Dole and they knew the price he had paid and they came forward to aid his recovery. Their nickels and dimes the hard-earned dollars they volunteered to do without were collected in cigar boxes and made possible the rest of Bob Dole's life of service. Who could ever forget such largesse, such support, such a loving effort to ease the hard work of a son of Kansas who had once been, yes, the best-looking senior at Russell High School. Bob Dole never forgot them. Never. And if he was here today, the mention of those coins in a cigar box would reduce him to tears. There are many great lessons to take away from Bob Dole's life. Go to the other guy's office so you can decide when the meeting is over. Get up and walk out. Speak straight, even when it gets you in trouble, because it will. But at least everyone will know how you stand and what you stand for. And always plan not just to win, but win big. Yes, you may try and fail, but you will not fail to try. And always, always. Remember, how many structures in this city exist but for the efforts of one man? The National World War II Memorial was built over two White House administrations with the contributions of Americans like you. But it was Bob Dole 
who willed this memorial into place. He pushed the idea. He corralled the votes. He made the phone calls. He enlisted allies, all of us, in the cause, and he raised the money. He did all but mix the concrete himself, which he may have done had he had the use of that right arm. This memorial stands in this rightful site because Bob Dole remembered. He remembered the nearly half a million souls who, unlike him, never came home from the Second World War. He remembered the years of service the surviving Americans had invested. Yet this memorial was not built only for the generation it honors any more than it was erected to crow of their victory. Bob Dole called this a memorial to peace so that all generations would remember that peace is achieved in shared labor, by shared sacrifice, by volunteering for the shared duty if peace is to be won, and if we Americans are to continue our pursuit of a more perfect nation in an imperfect world. Now, there are other great Americans who are remembered by memorials on this wide, long patch of green here in our capital. Places that hold the essence of their honor and their ethos, of their character and their efforts. Places where we feel a part of them, of all that they did and all that they tried to do, a bit of their presence when we visit. Bob Dole came to this plaza often to remember, to talk with veterans like himself and to their posterity by greeting them with a shake of his left hand. The memory and conscience of the man himself will always be here, right here, for as long as there is in America. And that is a good thing, because here we will always remember Bob Dole. Thank you, Savannah and Tom, for those kind words. And Senator Elizabeth, I think Senator Bob probably heard you when you said, let there be sun, right? So there you go. Perfect timing. We heard your prayer. I want to welcome everyone here, and I want to particularly welcome anyone who served in the Second World War. Are there any World War II veterans here today? I am incredibly humbled uh, to have the honor to speak here today as the son of a mother who served in World War II, took care of the wounded from the Pacific, and a father who served with the 4th Marine Division and hit the beach at Kwajalein and Saipan and Tinian and Iwo Jima, and like Senator Bob, they passed on. But it truly is a remarkable generation. And today is a solemn day for our nation, as we collectively mourn, but more importantly, we celebrate the life of Senator Bob Dole, an incredible example of a lifetime of selfless service to our nation. And it's fitting 
that we're here, surrounded by this World War II monument that Senator Dole did so much to build. A memorial dedicated to 16 million Americans who've gone the cloth of our nation and fought World War II. Okay, we have been watching the poignant ceremony honoring Senator Bob Dole. We heard a powerful speech there by General uh, Mark Milley, a eulogy, talking about just how um, selfless Senator Dole was in his service to the country. We're now watching his widow, Elizabeth Dole, uh, on the arm of General Milley uh, after this very powerful um, tribute to the senator. One week ago today, Senator Robert Dole died in his sleep, ending an extraordinary life that lasted for more than 98 years. Dole's passing came nearly 77 years after, by all rights, he should have died as a 21-year-old second lieutenant in the United States Army who was shot and temporarily paralyzed by the Germans while fighting in the mountains of Italy during World War II. Dole survived miraculously and became the very personification of what Tom Brokaw named the greatest generation. This week, admirers from across the political spectrum said goodbye to Senator Dole and to an era of American politics. NBC's chief foreign affairs correspondent, Andrea Mitchell, who covered Dole for many years, has our Sunday focus. The nation's political leaders brought together for one shining moment to honor a war hero and elder Republican statesman, Bob Dole. Nancy Pelosi leaning over to chat amiably with her political nemesis, Mitch McConnell. Bill Clinton turning to talk to former Vice President Dan Quayle. Even the political odd couple of polar opposites, Amy Klobuchar and Ted Cruz, in deep conversation. A brief echo of the bipartisanship of years past, when Dole was Republican leader, befriending a young Joe Biden. We served together for 25 years. We disagreed, but we were never disagreeable with one another. A far cry from the toxic rhetoric in Congress that seems commonplace these days. Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert slurring her Muslim Democratic colleague Ilhan Omar. I looked over and I said, oh, look. The Jihad Squad decided to show up for work today. And I said, well, she doesn't have a backpack. We should be fine. And what is unprecedented and what is tragic is the descent of transgression in this body. A bare knuckles fight over the Biden social spending plan. The American people would be a lot better off if this reckless tax and spending package never passed. And we got a new name for the GOP, the grand old phonies. And both parties divided among themselves. Progressive Democrats stymied for months by moderate Democratic senators Manchin and Cinema over the infrastructure bill and former President Trump's unprecedented refusal to concede, leading to House Republicans excommunicating Congresswoman Liz Cheney from party leadership for supporting an investigation into the former president's role in the January 6th insurrection when the political debate turned violent. I'll never forgive President, former president of the United States and his lackeys and his bullies that he sent to the Capitol. Bob Dole could be fiercely partisan, but he also knew how to lighten his dark moments with humor. As when two months after losing his 1996 challenge to Bill Clinton's second term, Dole was in the White House, receiving the Medal of Freedom from the man who had vanquished him. I, Robert J. Dole. <laughs> 
do solemnly swear. <laughs> Sorry, wrong speech. <laughs> and Dole built his Senate career on also working across the aisle. And Bob never hesitated to work with Democrats to get things done. With Daniel Patrick Moynihan to rescue Social Security in the 1980s. And Iowa liberal Tom Harkin and Teddy Kennedy to pass the Americans with Disability Act in the 1990s. The president reminding his fellow politicians how it used to be with Bob Dole. We genuinely respected one another as colleagues, as fellow Americans. It was real. It wasn't fake. And we became great friends. Does it take a funeral to remind elected officials that they used to get along? It's almost like looking at Pompeii, Andrea. We're looking at a bygone era that maybe someday will come back, but it's not going to happen anytime very soon. And Andrea joins me now live. Andrea, it is so great to see you on a Sunday morning. Boy, there's always nostalgia and romanticism when we look back at an earlier time. But Bob Dole really and truly does come from a different era of politics. So the question is, how did things change so relatively quickly in Washington? You're so right, Willie. Good morning to you, and it's great to be with you. Well, some former senators blame social media for poisoning the atmosphere and the degree that elected officials now rely on campaign contributions from special interests and PACs in order to get reelected. So they're always running around the country to raise money instead of being here and working on what needs to be done in Washington. But whatever the reasons, the kind of bipartisan friendships that I used to see on Capitol Hill for years and years, particularly when Bob Dole served there, now seem like ancient history, and those friendships often led to landmark legislation. A quaint relic of times gone by, Willie. An exclusive editorial for the Washington Post that Bob Dole asked to be published uh, at the time of his death. He had one last message for the public. And I've always said this, that Bob Dole came, comes the closest of any national figure for speaking what I think and feel. And if you've been listening to our podcast over the last year or read our book, you know that this is, in a lot of ways, exactly the message that we've been trying to, to, to send out to the public. Here's Bob Dole, in his own words. Shortly after I was elected Senate Majority Leader in November of 1984, a friend stopped by the Capitol to offer his congratulations. We toured my office reviewing pictures of past Majority Leaders and admiring two portraits of personal heroes. Abraham Lincoln, and Dwight D. Eisenhower. Something about the place, steeped in such distinguished history, touched a common nerve in us. We fell silent for a time. When a smile crossed my friend's face, with wonder he said, Imagine a kid from Russell, Kansas having an office like this. My home at birth was a three-room house. I grew up during the Dust Bowl, when so many of us helplessly watched our livelihoods blow away with the wind. I have always felt humbled to live in a nation that would allow my unlikely story to unfold. Many nights during my time as majority leader, I would step out of my office balcony overlooking the National Mall and be reminded of what made my journey possible. Facing me were monuments to our nation's first commander-in-chief, the author of our Declaration of Independence, and the president who held our union together. In the distance were the countless graves of those who gave their lives so that we could live free. That inspiring view came back to me as I watched the January 6 riots at the Capitol. I imagined the view of those monuments and headstones obscured by clouds of tear gas. 
I thought about the symbol of our democracy consumed by anger, hatred, and violence. There has been a lot of talk about what it will take to heal our country. We have heard many of our leaders profess bipartisanship, but we must remember that bipartisanship is the minimum we should expect from ourselves. America has never achieved greatness when Republicans and Democrats simply manage to work together or tolerate each other. We have overcome our biggest challenges only when we focused on our shared values and experiences. These common ties form much stronger bonds than political parties. I cannot pretend that I have not been a loyal champion for my party, but I always served my country best when I did so first and foremost as an American. I fought for veterans' benefits not as a Republican, but as someone who witnessed the heroism of our service members firsthand. I advocated for those with disabilities not as a member of the GOP, but as someone who personally understood the limitations of a world without basic accommodations. I stood up for those going hungry not as a leader in my party, but as someone who had seen too many folks sweat through a hard day's work without being able to put dinner on the table. When we prioritize principles over party and humanity over personal legacy, we accomplish far more as a nation. By leading with a shared faith in each other, we become America at its best, a beacon of hope, a source of comfort in crisis, a shield against those who threaten freedom. Our nation's recent political challenges remind us that our standing as the leader of the free world is not simply destiny. It is a deliberate choice that every generation must make and work toward. We cannot do it divided. I do have a hope that our country will rediscover its greatness. Perhaps it is the optimism that comes from spending 98 years as a proud American. I grew up in what others have called the greatest generation. Together, we put an end to Nazi tyranny. Our nation confronted Jim Crow, split the atom, eliminated the anguish of polio, planned our, planted our flag on the moon, and tore down the Berlin Wall. Rising above partisanship, we made historic gains in feeding the hungry and housing the homeless. To make a more perfect union, we swung open the doors of economic opportunity for women who were ready to rise to their fullest potential and leave shattered glass ceilings behind them. Our nation has certainly faced periods of division, but at the end of the day, we have always found ways to come together. We can find that unity again. In 1951, when I was newly elected to the Kansas House of Representatives, a reporter asked me what I had on my agenda. I said, well, I'm going to sit back and watch for a few days, and then I'll stand up for what I think is right. In 1996, when I left public office for the final time, I announced the same plans, to sit back for a few days and then start standing up for what I thought was right. After sharing these thoughts, I plan to once again return to my seat to sit back and watch. Though this time, I will count on tomorrow's leaders to stand up for what is right for America. With full optimism and faith in our nation's humanity, I know they will. I stand here with a heavy heart and also as a grateful and proud daughter. I have had an incredible 67 years with my dad. Not many people get that time, and I'm so thankful. I will be brief today to help me make it through this, 
and to make Dad smile, because a lot of us in this room know how much he appreciated brevity. I want to start by thanking all of you for being with us today. I think I can speak for Elizabeth when I say the outpouring of love and respect is so heartwarming. We are truly lifted by your presence. And thank you, Mr. President, for your warm remarks. I'll always treasure your recent visit to Dad and Elizabeth and I at the Watergate. It was wonderful, and I loved listening to you share all your stories about the time you served together. And I want to say thank you to his extended family, and now mine, former colleagues, former staff, current staff, members of his household, Elizabeth's staff, who I've gotten to know really well this last couple days, the brunch crew, all of his visitors and friends and family who called him regularly. He so enjoyed his time with all of you. And I want to say thank you to his medical team. And believe me, it was quite a team. His team on the East Coast and the West Coast for your dedication and for giving us so many wonderful years with Dad, especially this last year. We can't thank you enough. Finally, I want to thank his caregivers. I will be eternally grateful to you for providing extraordinary care and compassionate care to my dad and for always answering my many calls and texts with grace. There were a lot, believe me. The last years have been such a gift to me. I feel so fortunate I was able to spend hundreds of hours with my dad and talk to him almost every single night on the phone. We talked about everything under the sun. He told me things I never knew. He asked about my life, about my friends' lives. We made lots of calls to family to former colleagues in the Senate and in the House, to former staff. He shared feelings he had, had not shared before with many of these people. It was a wonderful experience for me to listen to these conversations and such a gift to them and to Dad. My dad is the most generous person I have ever known. He was a giver, not a taker. He cared more about others than he did about himself. He told me he set a personal goal to help at least one person every day of his life. Then he said, I'm not sure I've been able to meet my goal. I said, Dad, you've got to be kidding. Some days you help one person, and other days you help 40,000 people. 
I think you've met and exceeded your goal. Well, you may be right, he said. There is no one who helped, there is no one he helped more than me. He's always been there for me through thick and through thin. He always had my back, even when I made mistakes, and believe me, I made quite a few. He believes in giving second chances, and I know that firsthand. He was my rock. My dad was an animal lover, and we share that love. You've heard a lot about his work in animal welfare, but I'd like to share a few personal stories about his love for animals. When I was a little girl, my cousins and I would visit his parents in Russell every summer. Grandma would often have animals for us to play with. One year when I got home, I cried and cried because I didn't know what would happen to the little kitten that I played with and grew to love. Dad left on a trip to Kansas, and much to my surprise, he brought the kitten home with him on the plane for me. We named the kitten Rusty because he started in Russell. Recently, I lost my dog, Cooper. Dad was the first one to call me. He consoled me, and he said all the right things. The support, that support meant the world to me. Soon, he began to encourage me to get another dog. Quite frequently, he encouraged me to get another dog. And I'd tell him, I just don't know if, if I'm ready. But he kept encouraging me, and eventually, he got me a puppy. And I wanted to name my puppy after Dad. But, you know, I didn't want to name him Bob. <laughs> so I decided to name him Jojo after his middle name, Joseph. And we visited many, many times. Dad always wanted me to bring Jojo with me, which wasn't always easy, but we did it. And Dad always wanted me, when I got there, to hold Jojo up so he could get kisses from Jojo. I'd hold him up to his face. And Dad always wanted Elizabeth to get kisses, too. <laughs> and Jojo did a very good job spreading his love. Dad and Elizabeth's dogs, Blazer and Leader, were always trotting into his room. They loved to visit. But it was Blazer who was the most concerned about him. Blazer would lay at his feet whenever he suspected Dad needed special nursing care. And I believe it really helped him because he loved them so much. When I was preparing to speak today, I learned about a farewell letter Dad wrote with a former staff member. None of us knew that he had written this letter. He swore him to secrecy, and he kept a secret. The joke is, you may move on to other jobs, 
but once you're a Dole staffer, you're always a Dole staffer. And a lot of people in this room know that. I'd like to share in closing part of that letter, and I encourage you all to read it in its entirety. It has been released to the public as he wished. Here are his words. As I make the final walk on my life's journey, I do so without fear, because I know that I will again not be walking alone. I know that God will be walking with me. I also confess that I'm a bit curious to learn if I am correct in thinking that heaven will, will, will look a lot like Kansas. And to see, like others who have gone before me, if I will still be able to vote in Chicago. <laughs> I do have one request to make of you. Since I was dedicated, excuse me, since it was de dedicated in 2004, it has been my honor to go as often as I could to the World War II Memorial here in Washington, D.C., to welcome and thank the World War II veterans and all veterans who are visiting there. Since I won't be making that visit anymore, I hope that you will, and that you will ask your children and grandchildren to visit veterans' memorials across America and to never forget the sacrifice made not just by my generation, but by all those who wear the uniform of our country. My final words are the exact ones that Dwight Eisenhower used to conclude his speech in Abilene nearly seven decades ago. I believe in the future of the United States of America. I will miss him so much. I think I will still talk to him every night. I love you, Dad, and I promise you will never walk alone. Thank you. So let me leave a message to the future. I have found honor in the profession of politics. I have found vitality in the American experiment. Our challenge is not to question American ideals or replace them, but to act worthy of them. I have been in government at moments when politics was elevated by courage into history. When the Civil Rights Act was passed, when the Americans with disabilities became law. No one who took part in those honorable causes can doubt that public service, at its best, is noble. The moral challenges of our time can seem less clear, but they still demand conviction and courage and character. They still require young men and women with faith in our process. They still demand idealists captured by the honor and adventure of service. They still demand citizens who accept responsibility and who defy cynicism, affirming the American faith and renewing her hope. They still demand the President and Congress to find real unity in the public good.
If we remember this, then America will always be the country of tomorrow, where every day is a new beginning, and every life is an instrument of God's justice. Get the men who died, who gave that right to me. 
the lakes of Minnesota To the hills of Tennessee Across the plains of Texas From sea to ocean sea From Detroit to Houston Over New York to L.A. There's pride in every American's heart And it's time we stand and say Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now. <laughs>